You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In our first lectures, we have been considering the Father's teachings about the Trinitarian God and about Jesus' saving work and the Incarnation. And in this presentation, we have already introduced many themes of the Father's theological anthropology. That is, their theological views on the human person's created being, history, relation to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their gifts and destiny. In this lecture, I would like to expand on this theme and give some perspective on the development of certain of these topics. A large number of themes come together under this heading of theological anthropology. They include, first of all, the created human person, that is, the body, the resurrection of the body, the soul, the immortality of the soul by nature or as a gift of God, and the dual view of the person, body and soul, or the triple view, flesh, psyche, and spirit. Man and woman, human freedom. And a second convergence of themes might be called the original state of humankind and would include the questions of original justice and the special gifts sometimes referred to as preternatural and the meaning of original sin. A third theme is that of God's gifts, grace, justification, the supernatural, the vocation of the human person to share in God's nature or life adoption as a child of God, sharing or partaking in the divine nature, deification or divinization, membership in the body of Christ, the indwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, the social aspect of all this. What are the effects of original sin or personal sins? What do the fathers teach us about Christian asceticism, marriage and virginity, the church, eschatology? And so numerous are these themes that come under the heading of theological anthropology that many can be only mentioned or summarized very succinctly. But let us begin with a fundamental concept of theological anthropology, the human person. In the Church Fathers, we find two main types of human psychology, a triple or triadic view and a dual or dyadic view. The triadic view sees the human person as a union of flesh, the Greek sarx or the Latin caro, 
the animating soul, the Greek psyche, the Latin anima, and spirit, in Greek pneuma, Latin spiritus. Sometimes spirit is replaced by mind, nous in Greek or mens in Latin. In such a view, growth in Christian virtue or holiness would be by the presence of the Holy Spirit to the spirit or the presence of the person, or it could be by the presence of the logos, verbum, to the mind. The dual or dyadic view sees the human person as a union of body, soma or corpus, and soul. In this view, the soul has both the animating activities with respect to the body, flesh is made body, is organized by the soul dwelling in it and vivifying it, and the spiritual activities of intellection, willing, and free choice with regard to the body or flesh. The great problem which the fathers were confronted with the body was its corruptibility and the consequent annihilation of the human composite. Many of the fathers present as one of the most important elements of Christ's salvation the freedom from final corruption and annihilation, in which those saved through Christ would share his resurrection by their own bodily resurrection. In some fathers is found a tendency, influenced by Platonism and Stoicism, to regard the body as inferior, even as evil, or at least strongly tending to evil, and to consider the emotions or passions as inimical to and disruptive of moral and spiritual growth. Some Christian asceticism, and I emphasize some, as well as some attitudes towards sexuality, marriage, and virginity were influenced by such views. On the other hand, the fathers of the church always strongly opposed groups such as the Encraticists who denied the goodness of marriage and advised their sectarians to avoid it. Nevertheless, Manichaeism and Gnosticism, even though rejected by the fathers, had some influence among some group of Christians. What do the fathers teach us about the soul or spirit. Some fathers held the soul or spirit to be mortal by nature, immortality being received only as a gift or grace from God. Others, however, maintained that the soul is naturally immortal but needs God's added gifts to avoid evil and to know and love God in the higher way persons were called to by God's revelation in Christ. And as we mentioned previously, that since the church fathers were breaking new theological ground and deepening understanding of the church's deposit of faith, 
it is not shocking or surprising to see variations in some aspects of patristic thought. And the question of the immortality or mortality of the soul is one such area where it took some time for our Catholic thought to be solidified. Another theme important in this area of theological anthropology is human freedom and the image of God. We mentioned earlier that in reaction to the cultural environment of their time, the fathers, especially those in the East, stressed human freedom, freedom of the human will. Stoicism minimized free will by saying that human beings are in the hands of fate. We even have the expression, fate made me do it. The Greek cyclical view of history maintained that everything is predetermined and will eventually repeat itself. Manichaeism taught that at least the material part of the human person is from an evil god, a co-principle of creation with the good god, so that human persons cannot avoid evil. Gnosticism held that humans are divided into three classes in which they are fixed. You might recall, we mentioned the somatics, that is, the bodily people, the psychics, the animated persons or the spirit persons, and the pneumatics, the spiritual persons. The pneumatics are assured of salvation, the somatics cannot achieve it, while the psychics have a possibility of salvation if they gain gnosis and escape time, the body, and evil. All of these, Stoicism, Manichaeism, Gnosticism, all attack human freedom and responsibility in one way or another. They exonerated the person from responsibility for actions and left no room for personal good or evil choices, whereby in the case of good choices, a person might work towards his or her salvation. Therefore, the fathers stressed against them personal freedom and initiative in response to God's revelation and help. And in stressing human freedom and responsibility, many of the fathers used the theme of the human person as image of God, especially because of the endowment of human freedom in creation itself. Their scriptural source for this, of course, was Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What about the original state of mankind and original sin? The doctrines of original justice and original sin were worked out only gradually during the patristic era and reached their full development only with St. Augustine in the late 4th and early 5th century. One reason why the fathers in the earlier periods were generally silent 
about these themes of original justice, original sin, may have been their concern to insist on human freedom and responsibility against their contemporary Stoics, Manichees, and Gnostics. Another reason might be that many of the early writings are apologetic works directed to non-Christians, and so they fail to present a full body of statement about Christian beliefs. They focused, understandably so, first and foremost on the Trinitarian question and the Christological question. For St. Irenaeus, and for many of the earlier fathers, Adam is the source of sin because sin entered human history through him. And he is the type of all sinners because of his disobedience or, as some said, his pride in seeking undue knowledge or in misusing knowledge. There was lacking, however, a clear doctrine that all human persons had somehow sinned in Adam and had inherited guilt and liability to punishment because of Adam's sin. This latter view gradually developed from reflections on the many texts found in St. Paul from deductions concerning the practice of infant baptism, and perhaps from theologizing about the virginal conception of Jesus. As for infant baptism, the fathers differed as to why infants were baptized. John Chrysostom, for example, denies that it was done to remove sin or guilt. Origen mentions it, as does Tertullian, but neither draws a clear doctrine of original sin from the practice. Cyprian, whom you recall died in 258, is the first to link the two and others did the same afterwards. Ambrose, the teacher of St. Augustine, insisted that infants were baptized because they had inherited some corporate fault from Adam. Again, it is St. Augustine who developed fully our present understanding on original sin and its relation to the sacrament of baptism. The virginal conception of Jesus was linked with the holiness of Jesus by some of the fathers. It is said in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The influence of Christian asceticism, itself subject to non-Christian influences in some ways, may have emphasized this influence, this emphasis, with the corresponding concept that those conceived through ordinary human intercourse lacked some holiness. As in Paul himself, however, the doctrine of original sin was presented as a prelude or counterpart to the universal saving work of Christ 
bringing more abundant gifts to all. That is, although the doctrine had a pessimistic side, it was really meant to assert the positive and more abundant goods given to us through Christ. In this sense, the exultet of the Easter liturgy, perhaps composed by the great St. Ambrose himself, could sing of Adam's sin as a felix culpa, that is, a happy fault, and as very necessarium, that is, truly necessary, because it merited such and so great a Redeemer. Linked with this view of Adam's fall and of human solidarity in his fall, but also in Christ's saving work, was a changed view about Adam and Eve in their first condition. There is no clear evidence that the early fathers viewed Adam and Eve as enjoying many special prerogatives or some very lofty state of human existence. But as more stress was placed upon the fall of Adam and Eve and its consequences for them and their descendants, the picture of their original state, of their original justice, before sin was painted in brighter colors. They were seen, for example, as endowed with immortality, great knowledge, physical perfection, freedom from suffering. These came to be called in later theology the preternatural gifts of Adam and Eve before sin, gifts given over and above human nature and not strictly owing to it, yet not strictly supernatural either, as grace was considered to be. What about the doctrine of grace, such an important element of our Catholic faith and such an essential part of our theological anthropology? God's response to the human person's sin and corruptibility and to whatever involvement existed in Adam's sin was the saving work of Christ. We have already seen how the fathers viewed this saving work on Christ's part and some of its effects. Here we shall examine these effects more directly under the general theme or title of grace which, like Christ's saving work, has many ramifications and was treated through many themes. Until recent times, the theology of grace reflected controversies of the last five or six centuries, which were concerned with the relation between grace and nature, or between grace and free will. Justification was discussed in terms of faith or of good works done under faith. The renewal of patristic studies, especially of the Greek fathers, which has marked the last 75 years of scholarship, 
has helped broaden the awareness of the rich doctrine of grace in all of the fathers, including St. Augustine, who was studied too exclusively for his doctrine on these debated issues coming out of the Reformation. These newer studies have given a more balanced and less one-sided view of patristic doctrines of grace and justification, a view that is generally much more positive and realistic. A few highlights then on the development of the patristic doctrine of grace. As with other revealed doctrines, it took several centuries for what was lived in practice in the realm of grace to be thought out and expressed in doctrinal statements. The theme of grace, of course, of God's graciousness is a theme that permeates the New Testament. But like the many scriptural references to the Most Holy Trinity, and like the scriptural references indicated the saving work of Christ, it took time to integrate, to ponder, and to be able to articulate in a way that took advantage of the wisdom of a particular age. The same is true with the doctrine of grace. With respect first to the Apostolic Fathers, among them St. Ignatius of Antioch, who you may recall died in the year 115 as a martyr in Rome, has many expressions in his letters describing the various gifts of God. And we are not limiting ourselves here to the exact or precise word grace, but are emphasizing the whole idea of the gifts communicated by God's graciousness. This graciousness itself being the primary source of the gifts given. Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, one of the great apologists of the late second century, in fighting against the Gnostics, developed Pauline and Joannine teaching. Against the doctrine of self-redemption, as taught by the Gnostics, St. Irenaeus taught the doctrine of recapitulation in all things in Christ. To the Gnostic doctrine of salvation by a secret gnosis or doctrine, Irenaeus oppose the doctrine of Christian love, available to all as the one means of salvation. He also stressed, as did others, the saving power of Christ's revelation, a public revelation, not one hidden or reserved to only a few, but a public revelation communicated to all through the Church, which had received it from the Apostles through apostolic succession. The Holy Spirit, for St. Irenaeus, is the giver of life. Christians have the spirit of adoption as children of God. The fourth century saw the fullest development of the patristic understanding of grace. 
This doctrine and salvation lies behind much of the controversy that we have previously discussed with respect to the Christological and Trinitarian questions. Athanasius, as we have noted earlier, links the incarnation with divinization. The Word of God became man in order that we might be made God. And again, remember, not in any pantheistic sense, but rather in the participation by us in the divine nature of God. For St. Athanasius, the words consubstantiality with the Father is also important for the doctrine of grace. Since, if the Word is not God, He cannot make us divine. In his treatise against the Arians, St. Ignatius writes, There would have been no profit to us men if either the Word had not been truly and by nature Son of God, or the flesh which he assumed had not been real flesh. Athanasius also speaks of sonship by nature, belonging to the Word and sonship by grace that belongs to created human persons. That's his sense of participation in the divine nature. Among the Western Fathers, St. Cyprian of Carthage speaks of the human person's need of grace for salvation and of baptism as the labor of rebirth and sanctification. Saints Hilary, Ambrose, and Augustine all have developments on grace. In fact, St. Augustine is often referred to as the doctor of grace. And I will reserve further comment on his thoughts for a later lecture when we focus more exclusively on the teachings of St. Augustine. But in general, we can say that the Western Fathers stress original sin and its effects more than do the Eastern Fathers. Therefore, the Western Fathers tend to look somewhat more to the healing function of grace rather than to the elevating function of grace which is more emphasized in the Greek and Eastern Church Fathers. But I emphasize that the Western Fathers also speak of the more positive aspects of grace, giving rebirth, renewal, holiness, and the indwelling of God. And now just a few themes of grace that appear repeatedly in the Church Fathers. First of all, the Fathers teach us that the bestowal of grace and gifts is the work of the Trinity. The Fathers see the conferral of grace and gifts as coming from the Father, by the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, 
The effects of these gifts is the divinization of the Christian. This sense of divinization has been a theme present in the teaching of the Greek fathers throughout the third and fourth centuries. We have noted already its importance and its place in St. Athanasius' understanding of the saving work of Christ. And specific points concerning divinization are as follows. First of all, baptism is usually linked with divinization as the means by which we receive it. Secondly, divinization is a grace of adopted sonship. Third, it is a sharing in the divine nature. And finally, it is real in the person, but at the same time is above nature. That is, it is supernatural. And another theme surrounding the Father's teaching on grace is that there is a profound spiritual mystical aspect to this doctrine. This is especially true in fathers such as Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, whom I have mentioned as one of the outstanding mystical theologians of the patristic era. Some aspects are, first, the indwelling or inhabitation of the persons of the Trinity in the Christian. And so part of our inheritance is the very beautiful and profound sense of each Christian person being a dwelling place of the Most Holy Trinity. There is also a sense of the mystical birth of Christ in each Christian. Based on St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, the 19th verse, My little children, you to whom I am giving birth again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. This theme is found, for example, in St. Irenaeus and again in Origen. And the spiritual mystical aspect of the doctrine of grace also is reflected in the illumination of the Christian. The Greek word for illumination was used for baptism itself because baptism was considered an illumination of the person's mind and so of his life. The Oanine writings use the light-darkness theme, and the fathers often see salvation as the new knowledge brought by Christ's replacing former ignorance. And St. Clement of Alexandria expresses the theme as the first in a series of steps leading to divinization. He writes thus, Baptized, we are illumined. Illumined, we are adopted. Adopted, we are made perfect. Perfect, we are immortalized. I have said it is written, You are gods and sons of the Most High, all of you. And finally, just one short remark 
In concluding this section on the theological anthropology of the fathers, regarding the question of grace and liberty. For the Greek fathers, it is through grace that liberty is gained. In teaching this, they are faithful to Pauline theology. Grace and liberty are not opposed to each other as they are in some later theologians. For the Greek fathers, human persons are like God by liberty and are like God by grace. Man's original liberty was destroyed by sin, which enslaves man. Faith in Christ and His grace restores liberty. Beatitude gives liberty its full perfection. This is a theme, of course, that's perennially important, the relationship of grace and free will. And it's one that we are on firm foundation through the teaching of the fathers. And again, we will come back to this when we consider more particularly the teachings of St. Augustine. And so I hope that these different themes, all related to this question of theological anthropology, will give you a deep appreciation for the richness and especially for the very positive affirmation of who we are as human persons, body and soul, made in the image and likeness of God. Too often, the fathers of the church are stereotyped as to being anti-flesh, anti-body, anti-sexuality. And while, as I mentioned, there may have been some stream of that incorporated through an overemphasis on Platonic philosophy, by far the majority of the fathers emphasize and re-emphasize the positiveness of creation, the positiveness of sexuality, the positiveness of Christian life. And so we are indeed blessed by the rich corpus of thought and of development on these important themes of theological anthropology. I would like to now turn our attention to a fourth and final theme central to a comprehensive understanding of the teaching of the Church Fathers. And that has to do with the sacraments. First of all, the word itself. The Greek word that in the fourth century came to be used of sacraments was mysterion, from which the English word mystery is derived. In the pre-Christian Greek usage, mysterion meant, first of all, a secret, and secondly, a religious initiation in which secrecy was imposed. For St. Paul, mysterion signifies, first, the secret of God about man's salvation through Christ, a secret now revealed. There is thus in the word an ambivalence of secret and revelation. 
Secondly, for Paul, mysterion signifies the hidden meaning, whether symbolic or typical, of an institution. Thus, it is applied to marriage in the church in Ephesians 5.32, insofar as marriage from its first institution was a type of the union of Christ and his church. And thirdly, for St. Paul, mysterion is a hidden action, as when he speaks of the mystery of iniquity. But in the New Testament, mysterion was not applied to the sacred rite constituting the sacraments. Early Christian writers applied the word to the mysteries of Christ, that is, Christian belief and practices. Only in the fourth century did John Chrysostom apply the word mysterion to baptism and confirmation. The Latin equivalent would be expected to be arcanum, but it was instead sacramentum that came to be used. In early Latin translations, sacramentum was used to translate mysterion. Early translators seemed to wish to avoid words such as mysteria, sacra, arcana, initia, which in Rome were already applied to pagan mystery rites. Tertullian, as we have noted on previous occasions, was very important for establishing Latin terminology. Again, his place is crucial, this time for the application of this term, sacramentum, to Christian rites. He used sacramentum not only for all the meanings of mysterion found in scriptures, but also for faith, Catholic doctrine and discipline, the economy of salvation, and so forth. And he also applied the term sacramentum to Christian rites. And so for us, the question of how many sacraments are there has a direct and specific answer, seven. But for the church fathers, in using the word sacramentum in a much broader sense, then there would be many more than seven sacramenta, because it would include not only Christian rites, but also Christian doctrine and discipline, all being a part of the sacramenta. Thus, Tertullian speaks of the sacramentum militiae, that is, the oath pronounced at the start of military service in the army, Christianity as the militia Christi, the army of Christ, being a sacramentum. And he also speaks of baptism as a sacramentum, it being the oath par excellent, expressing opposition to the worship of false idols. Now, some general points concerning the Father's teaching on the sacraments. First of all, the Fathers had no theology of the sacraments considered in general. They emphasized the individual 
sacraments of initiation, especially since much of their treatment of sacraments is found in catechetical instructions concerning the sacraments of initiation. Recall that the church fathers were not academic scholars in the modern sense. They were bishops, pastors, fully involved in the life of their community. And so they dealt with specific instructions with regard to individual rites and sacraments. Now, by examining these sacraments, they did develop principles of sacramental theology, which then gradually extended to other symbolic rites. Secondly, their general notion of a sacrament involved a double element. The first element being that of symbol, a thing that conveys meaning in various ways. And secondly, an element of sanctification, a making holy. Sacraments were looked upon as symbols of sanctification or holiness. That is, symbols or signs of holiness insofar as they symbolized or signified a holy reality and helped produce this reality. This general notion was lived and taught rather unreflexively until the time, again, of the great St. Augustine, who develops the notion of sign and symbol in a technical, conscious way. A third comment concerning the Father's teaching on the sacraments. As I noted, there was no clear classification of seven sacraments as they came to be listed in the 12th century and later as they were defined as being seven by the Council of Trent in 1547. These seven sacraments were not clearly differentiated from other sacred symbolic rites practiced in the early church. Thus, Tertullian uses the word sacrament, sacramentum, only of baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, and marriage. He does, however, speak of other rites that would come to be called sacraments. Origen speaks of all the rites later to be called sacramenta except for confirmation, which was not always clearly distinguished from baptism, and for the anointing of the sick. Although he quotes James 5, 14 and 15, the scriptural text used as a basis for this sacrament. Ambrose uses sacramentum only of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, although he knows the other rites later to be called the sacraments. Confirmation was closely linked with baptism, and only gradually did the fathers come to see it as a separate sacrament or rite. Baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist were given closely together in the rite of initiation during the Paschal Vigil. 
In the West, the imposition of hands seemed more important in confirmation than did the anointing so far as the exterior symbol of confirmation was concerned. The East stressed the anointing as more important. Penance is often mentioned and at an early date. From the earliest period, Christian penance was available even for the baptized. Scholars differ, however, as to whether there was any private penance in the early centuries. Private penance can refer to any of the following three elements, and in reading ancient authors or modern scholars, one must examine which one or ones are meant. First of all, private penance can mean private confession of sins as opposed to public confession. Private confession was the general practice of the church ever since the earliest ages. Secondly, private penance might refer to private as opposed to public acts of satisfaction. Penitential practices. These in the patristic era were often publicly imposed and publicly performed. And thirdly, private penance can refer to private as opposed to public absolution from sins. Penance was considered to be a reconciliation not only with God, but with the church, which had been betrayed by the sinner. The early Christians were aware of this social character of sin and felt the need for reconciliation with the community as well as with God. The sacrament of sacred orders was clearly thought to be an important and holy rite, but it was seldom called a sacrament. Anointing of the sick. There is little textual evidence of this practice. The first clear text concerns the blessing of oil. This third-century retext refers to the strength of those who taste it and the health of those who use it. The East seems to have been ahead of the West in regard to the sacrament of anointing. Another point that the Church Fathers developed with regard to the sacraments is that sacramental theology was clarified by discussions about the rebaptism of heretics and schismatics and about the ordinations performed for them. As heretical or schismatic groups separated from the main body of the church, they began to take in new members and to baptize them and to ordain them. When any of these persons wished to join the Catholic Church, the question arose as to whether they should be baptized or ordained by the church. Rome and Alexandria had the practice of not baptizing them, but of having a reconciliation ceremony. In the African and some Eastern churches, the practice was to baptize and ordain such persons. Cyprian, the great bishop of Carthage, disagreed with Pope Stephen I of Rome about this. 
Cyprian held that the Lord had taught that only those who have the Holy Spirit can baptize and confirm for remission of sin. And this disagreement finally led to a clarification of the distinction between genuine or valid reception of these sacraments and the fruitful reception of them. That is, the reception of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and the beginning of a share in the divine life. The link of baptism and the Spirit was investigated as a result of this controversy. And, as we know, the Roman practice prevailed, at least in the West. And again, we shall see that St. Augustine, although an African, sided with the Roman position and worked out a theology opposing baptizing those coming from heresy or schism into the church. And a final remark on the development of the understanding of sacraments. During the patristic era, the importance of the formula, the words pronounced in conferring of the sacrament, came to be stressed. One reason we have noted that if baptism was performed correctly in the name of Christ, it was considered genuine and valid. This removed doubt about the conferring of the sacrament if the life of the minister was that of a schismatic or an evil person. That is, the stress was laid on the power of the symbolic rite itself, as long as the proper words and what came to be known as the correct matter were used, then the sacraments came to be seen and recognized as valid. We can already see then the foundation of what later came to be called ex opere operato, literally from the work having been performed. And so, we see then that in the development of the thought of the fathers of the church, we have been richly endowed with a deeper and fuller understanding of the meaning of the sacraments and their place in relationship to the economy of salvation. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.